All right, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. We'll put the verses up on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, please message us. We'd be happy to deliver one to your porch. Um, Luke chapter 10 uh, is the parable. It's, it's often called the parable of the good Samaritan, and we are going to look at it today, and we're going to draw out some of the lessons on racism that we can find from that parable. So we've been doing a series recently called Unshakable, and we're really trying to navigate this season of shaking, and we're trying to figure out what are the firm foundations on which we can build our lives so that we're not shaken apart. And our leadership team said, you know what, we need to take a break from our regularly planned preaching calendar to address the issue of the moment, which is racial reconciliation. And I believe that that's a very good uh, intuition of our leaders and and something that I'm happy that we are doing today. And so we're going to jump into Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at this teaching of Jesus, and we're going to draw out some lessons on racism. Now, before I even get started, I don't want to lose any of you, and I know that this is such a contentious subject matter, so let me give you four qualifications before we even jump into the parable itself. Let me tell you uh, four qualifications about this. First off, this is not a political sermon. By speaking into this subject, I am not in any way suggesting that I am adopting some party uh, scheme to try to address this issue. Um, I'm, I'm not intending to take a political stance in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm saying this party or this party is right or wrong in all of this. This is a political sermon. I believe that the kingdom of God touches every aspect of the human experience and therefore is political, but I want to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and to his lordship and, and to how he is reigning in this world and calling his people to be a part of his lordship. But first off, this is not a political sermon. Secondly, I want you to know that I do not endorse violence, hatred, and theft. As we look at not only the uh, videoed taking of the life of George Floyd, but then the subsequent events that followed with peaceful protesting and then not so peaceful protesting and rioting and looting and theft and, and, and violence, I just want you to recognize that by speaking into this, I'm not condoning a violent reaction to the world as we find it. Martin Luther King Jr. himself put it like this. He said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding a deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. So secondly, I do not endorse violence, hatred, and theft. Third, I believe that public safety officials are important and valuable. My next-door neighbor uh, was a correctional officer in a local prison, in a nearby prison, for a number of years. In my neighborhood itself, we have many police officers who reside there. In our church, in our campus, we have an individual who is a police officer, and I've been praying for him, and I've been uh, inspired by the opportunity that he has to reflect Christ's likeness in the midst of a very broken and hurting world. And and I just want you to hear that, that I really do believe in public safety officials, and I value them as an integral integral part of our society. Um, Not only that, when we did our fundraiser back at the beginning of the pandemic, we raised a bunch of funds to bless frontline workers, and we were able to bless three different police precincts in the state line area with meals and gift cards and things of that nature. So we do value public safety officials. 
Fourthly, I want you to know that as I consider this topic, my limitations feel like they come to the surface, and there are many of them, and, and um, you know, I suppose I could put a ton of qualifications here of what I'm not able to do in this moment. But let me be, be very clear that as I consider my role in this, I want you to know that I'm not a judge, I'm not a politician, I'm not a sociologist, I'm a pastor. I'm not a judge, meaning I can't look at the, I'm not examining the evidence and trying to assign guilt or innocence. I'm not looking at all the details of the situations that have unfolded, feeling that I am called to render some sort of judgment on all the things that are happening. That's not my role in this. I'm also not a politician. My role in this is not to propose policies, to suggest what government officials should and shouldn't be doing. That is beyond the scope of my understanding. I'm not a politician. I'm also not a sociologist. I'm not able to look at the events of our culture today and understand all the nuances of factors playing into the events that transpired. And so I do believe pastors have an obligation to pay attention to culture and to study culture and to speak uh, very sensibly into it. But I want you to understand that that is not my primary role. My primary role, as I understand it, is to be a pastor which as I understand it means that I have an obligation to lead a people to a shared destination, which is preparedness for Christ's return. I have an obligation in this moment to try to help lead the people who consider the McChesney Park campus of Central Christian Church, their home church. I have an obligation to you to figure out how can we navigate this moment together and how can we arrive together at this destination of readiness for Christ's return. And that my friends, feels very hard right now. As we are divided on these issues and we approach them from different vantage points, I have, no, I have no intention of trying to get us to a place of uniformity where we all think alike and act alike and have the same exact ideas. We, I'm not suggesting we're going to have uniformity, but I do believe we need to have unity. And so that is my role as a pastor. So let's get to work. Let's read the parable itself. Let's read the text itself. We'll pray and then we'll get to work. This is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he went and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would give ears to hear your word to us. We pray, God, with gratefulness for your voice in the midst of such a traumatic moment in our lives. Your word tells us in James 1.19 that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it feels like we're doing a lot of the opposite of that. So in this moment, we're asking with this prayer of faith that you would help us to be quick to listen, that we would want to hear the other side, that we'd be slow to speak, that we would be careful that we don't rush to our conclusions, and that we would be slow to anger that we would be careful not to allow the sin of the flesh to have its reign in us in this moment, but help us to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Help us, Jesus. We desperately want to be the kind of church that really does reflect the beauty of the gospel to a broken world. We want to be calm in the midst of chaos. We want to be gentle in the, in the midst of brash rudeness. We, we want to be the people of the kingdom of God. We want to be a city on a hill. We want people to be magnetized to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because they can see in us something of the beauty of what it looks like to be under his leadership. So we commit this time to you, and we ask God that you would please use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, lessons on racism. Obviously, if you've read the text, uh, you, you notice that the, the text itself is suggesting that there is an interaction between two people groups who in that day and age were hostile toward one another. All the commentators will point this out, that the way that the story is told intends that a person from Jerusalem, a Jew, is going down to Jericho and is beaten up, and then the hero of the story is an unlikely person because it's a person from another people group to which the Jews had hostility toward, and vice versa. So in this parable, we see this racial tension, and we see how what love demands actually draws these people toward one another. And so I want to show you a few lessons on racism from the text, and I'm just going to point them out along the way. We're going to look at them, and then, you know, Lord willing, we'll, we'll do what God is asking us to do. But the first thing that I want you to see is this tendency that we all have, and it is the tendency to justify ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to the man, after asking how he reads the Bible and what the interpretation is and how he ought to love God and love neighbor. And Jesus said, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to want to justify yourself? Why is it that Luke kind of steps aside and gives us a little comment here and says, look, this question is really revealing that this man wants to justify himself. What does it mean to justify yourself? Well, to justify yourself means that you don't really have to examine your own heart. You don't really have to make any changes here. You want to justify yourself. And this is a feature of the human experience that we all go through. When we are challenged, we often want to justify ourselves. We want to prove that our position is correct, that, is, that there's no need for us to make any adjustments, and that anyone who would come against us in that is actually in the wrong. 
So this week I was doing some uh, premarital counseling, a couple that's going to get married in October and had the ability to, to get together with them and, and work through some stuff. And um, I was reminded of, of this uh, reality. One of the exercises that I always do in premarital counseling is an exercise to help with uh, assertive communication and active listening. And, and um, every time I do this, I coach the couple and I say, this is really bizarre, but I need you to know communication often goes haywire very easily in relationships. And so you're going to communicate assertively and you're going to actively listen and you're going to try to hear what the other person is saying and then actually repeat it back. But communication experts have pointed out that the way that you process words versus the, the rate at which you can speak words, there's actually a huge difference. So in your head, and you know this to be true, in your head, while someone is talking, you have a surplus of words. And what I tell the couple every time I'm doing premarital counseling is, watch what you do with those words. Because in most cases, especially when it's a heated subject matter, when it's an emotional subject matter, what you do with those extra words is you try to justify yourself. You try to create the perfect response, the perfect rebuttal, to come back against what that person is assertively communicating to you. That's what we do. When there is anything that is important and anything that we're emotionally engaged in, we have a tendency to want to justify ourselves. We are very creative, and we can do this in a variety of different ways. And when it comes to the issue of racism in our world right now, I'm just acknowledging personally my tendency is to want to justify myself, to not really look at my own heart, to not really examine what love demands from me, to not really want to make any adjustments, but to simply say I'm right and anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. I want to justify myself. Now, we can be justified in a few different ways. I'm going to try to offend everybody and not just a kind of person, but one of the ways we can justify ourselves in this moment is to dismiss the conversation. We can say that this isn't a necessary conversation, that this is an overreaction and all of this stuff, and media is kind of feeding us all these different things, and we can just be very dismissive, and that's an, that's an attempt to justify ourselves. We can also seek to justify ourselves on the other end of the spectrum by trying to do little things, minimal things that don't actually cost us anything. We can make a couple posts online and say, yeah, yeah, clearly I'm not a racist, I'm in agreement, and we can make these small little kind of things to appease people, and we can also be, in creative ways, trying to justify ourselves. So what we need to acknowledge then with this lesson is that we have this tendency when there's a costly obligation of love, we have a tendency to try to bolster our own position and not pay attention to what God might be drawing us into or calling us to. And so one of the ways that we might consider uh, whether or not we are open, whether or not we are willing to allow the obligation of love to have its effect on us is if we're willing to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, and we hear somebody who thinks differently than us, and we actually listen to that, and maybe we would say something like this, I never thought about it like that before. I think that's when we're realizing we're not trying to justify ourselves, but we're trying to actually lean in and pay attention. And we're trying to listen to what God might be asking us to do in these moments. So as we consider this, what are the ways that you are tempted to justify yourself? I've heard very creative excuses on both sides of the issue recently. 
What is the go-to excuse that you might employ to make this a non-issue in your life today? We have a tendency to try to justify ourselves. Secondly, here's the second lesson that I see. We can excuse ourselves from involvement for all kinds of reasons, including religious and social reasons. Let's look at the Let's look at the parable here, verses 31 and 32. As Jesus is telling the story, a person is mugged, left for dead, and then new, new people are introduced. Look at this, verse 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Two People of the law, people who are spiritual leaders, people who know what the law demands from them, people who are like the questioner in the story, people who are experts in the law. But when they come to this person in need, they find a way to alleviate their responsibility. They find a way to say, I see a problem here. There's a man laying here and he is in desperate need, but that's not my problem. I'm going to cross over to the other side of the road. I'm going to find a way to circumnavigate this experience so that I can carry on with my responsibilities and my concerns. Now, the commentators pointed this out, and uh, they, they were acknowledging what are some of the excuses that these first century individuals might have employed. And, and uh, some of the writings from the first century, and I looked this up in a commentary that I had purchased several years ago, so I'm not trying to bolster an opinion that I'm forming right now. This is just there. They said that one of the excuses that priests and Levites might use to kind of get themselves off the hook here is to look at this person and come to the conclusion, this person must not be that good of a person for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they would answer that theologically. If God loved this person, why are they here? If God loved them, then why did they find themselves in this desperate condition in the first place? But maybe it's not even that creative. They just look at a person and they kind of make a snap judgment and they say, well, must have been a bad guy. Bad things happened to him, must have been a, must have been a bad person. And I've heard that excuse quite often recently that alleviates the responsibility of love, the obligation of love, where we just want to say, look, you know, maybe George Floyd was a bad dude and he got what was coming to him. And I've heard that, and I just feel that given this text and given what Jesus is teaching here, I'm not sure we can get off the hook that easily. We can excuse ourselves from involvement for all kinds of reasons, including religious and social reasons. One of the other excuses the commentators point out is that maybe the priests and the Levites find this person in need, and they don't want to sacrifice their ability to be in their community and to care for their own people. So they look at a person and they go, if I stop here and I give my time and my energy to this person, then I'm actually taking it away from my primary responsibilities. And maybe I would even become contaminated. Maybe I'd become unclean and then I wouldn't be able to care for those who are in need. And it's a very kind of creative way to excuse yourself. You're using a religious excuse to get you out of the call for mercy. And to be honest, that's the pressure that I've felt this week. Um, as I look at the issue of racial reconciliation and racial inequality, and I consider the issue personally, the pressure that I feel on this is to go around the issue. Um, I, don't know if you've, I don't know if you can remember this. It's been so many weeks since we've been together, but we're a primarily white church. 
And um, as I consider speaking into racism, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but I feel that there are a lot of people who just feel that this, is a, this isn't an issue that we should be talking about. And so the pressure for me is, if I speak into this issue, will I lose social credibility? It would be easier for me to kind of navigate around the issue for the sake of maintaining peace and having future opportunities to speak into different issues. Our lead pastor and our executive pastor this week, they said, you should, um, you should play the, the sermon from the, Beloit, from the Beloit campus this week. We should speak with a unified voice on this subject. And there were several times this week where I thought to myself, yep, let's do that. Let's just do that. I'll allow somebody else to speak into this. I won't have to cash in any of my social chips here. I, I won't have to really put you know, myself at risk at all in this. I'll just allow somebody else to take the heat for it. But as I prayed about it this week, I felt that that would be neglecting my responsibility to care for my fellow man. That I would be going around, that I would creatively be going around a very significant and important issue. And so I felt the need to, to speak into it. So we all come up with these different excuses, all kinds of different excuses and reasons that would excuse ourselves from involvement. What are some of those excuses that you're currently employing? Number three, here's the third lesson. Love recognizes need and takes action. Love recognizes need and takes action. Action, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Jesus is telling the parable, and the Samaritan comes along, and when he sees this person in their desperate condition, he immediately recognizes what's going on, and he moves toward that individual. He saw him, and he took pity on him. So what is the obvious need of this moment that we're in right now. What is, the what is the obvious need of this moment right now? And I think that the answer to that might be complex, but maybe not so much. I think that the obvious need of the moment is that a portion of our society is, is speaking out to tell us that their experience in our world is very different from what my experience might be. Our... Um, Declaration of Independence puts it like this. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these include, the, incl include uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that is a document that is a staple feature of our country. And I think what African-Americans might say is, that looks great on paper, and we wish it were true, but that has not been our experience. I think we need to recognize in this moment that there is an obvious need to which we ought to be responding as best as we possibly can, listening as best as we possibly can, creatively thinking through how we can be a part of the solution. Um, Barna Group is a Christian research organization, and they did uh, some questions. I believe this is maybe a couple years old now, uh, but they did a, a survey surveying thousands of Christian individuals in the United States, and they published the findings of that survey. It's called, Where Do We Go From Here? 
how U.S. Christians feel about racism. I believe it's available right now online as a free digital download. So if you go to Barna.com, you could track down all this information and uh, read the articles for yourself. But, but here's what Barna found when they researched lots of different Christians in the United States. And here's the thing that I found very, very significant. Um, the majority of people, the majority of Christians believe that racism wasn't, was an issue that needed to be addressed by the church, and it continues to be an issue in our society. But here's the part of the findings that were, for me, very noteworthy. It was the disparity between how African Americans answered the questions and how white Christians answered the question. They were very different. So to go back to that um, illustration of premarital counseling, I use an assessment with a couple, uh, with all the couples that I do premarital counseling with, and it's an online assessment so that they each individually go online and they answer a bunch of questions. And then what the, uh, the thing does is it puts their questions over against each other. It syncs them up. And... Um, when I look at it, I have a facilitator's report where I'm able to see this person answered this way, this person answered this way. Now, when they have agreement, that's easy, right? When they see things the exact same, then sometimes they might notice this is an area that we need to work on and, you know, we both are in agreement here. But one of the very useful parts of that premarital assessment is that it will show you when they have a different answer to the same question meaning one person thinks one way and then the other person feels very differently about it. Okay, you guys are very smart. You're a very perceptive congregation. Let me ask you this. When those issues come out in that survey, is whatever it is that they're talking about, is it an issue? If one person answers one way and then the, the significant other answers in an opposite way or in a different way, is that an issue? The answer is absolutely. I don't care. I don't have to go finding out all of the nuances and details of, of the difference necessarily. I can look at that on paper and say, that's something they have to talk about. Because if they don't, they are on different pages. And that will cause a problem in their relationship. So if, if it's, you know, partner style and habits, which is a category of the assessment. And one person is saying, this really is an issue for us. The partner style and habit, it, it just irks me. And the other person's like, no, it's totally fine. We're, we're good. I don't have to visit their homes and go, you know what? You need to learn how to do your own laundry and fold your clothes. Like this person isn't overreacting you actually need to do something here. I don't have to go and kind of drum up all the details. When I see on paper that there is a difference in opinions, I know right away that's something that needs to be talked about. So when Barna does a research study and how African Americans answer the question is so different from how white Americans are answering the same questions, we have to just recognize there's a need here. There's a need for honest dialogue so that we can come together on these things. We don't have to go drumming up all the necessary specifics of everything, but we have to be the people who are willing to say, there is work to be done here. Charlie Dates is an African-American preacher, and uh, he's a friend of a friend. He's connected with some, some friends in the Rockford area, but he's an African-American preacher, 
in the Chicago area, and a couple of years ago, he was speaking to a group of Christian leaders that were primarily white, and so he said uh, to them, uh, he, he basically was saying, we're not asking you to solve all of our problems. We're not, ask, we're not expecting for you to just kind of swoop in like Superman with your cape on and fix everything. But then he said this, and I'm going to quote him uh, verbatim. He said, we have expected you, speaking to the you know, white Christian leaders, he ha- we have expected you to be our greatest allies in the struggle against injustice. And what I heard him saying, what I was hearing through the tone, I'm, I'm hearing this, brokenness that's looking for help. That there is, a, there, there is a cry that Christians would take the lead in this thing. The Barna study and what Charlie Dates is speaking about, we're, we're saying, man, can't, can't the church be involved in this conversation in a significant way? Shouldn't the church of all places, the place of reconciliation, shouldn't the church be leading the discussions in these things? So love recognizes need and it takes action. Look at verse 34. He, at the beginning of 34, it says he went to him. Love not only acknowledges that something is broken, but love moves toward it. It moves toward him. And as you recall, the commentators all point out that the Samaritan-Jew relationship, the one of hostility, this is something that is bizarre. Because what would have been culturally expected, what would have been culturally normal in that moment is for the Samaritan to say, that is not my problem. There's so much hostility here between me and him. This is not my issue. But love recognizes need and is willing to move past what is culturally normal and to do what love requires. All right, love recognizes need and takes action. The fourth lesson that we can see here is that love sacrificially cares for people. Love sacrificially cares for people. Verses 34 and 35, he, the Samaritan, went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Love is willing not only to move forward, to recognize need and take action, but love is willing to sacrifice. Love is willing to evaluate and go, this person is in need and I have abundance, so I'm going to take from my own resources to try to alleviate pain and suffering for this individual. Love sacrificially cares for people. We need to be thinking through, how can we use our time, our energy, our resources as agents of change in this world? How can we alleviate suffering from a population that's crying foul in this moment? How can we be involved in that reconciling work and we recognize that that's going to be costly? That's not going to come easily. And and honestly, it's going to take some creativity for us. Um, We're going to have to figure out what that looks like. What is the need? And this is a very complex issue. Uh, I, I wish it were as simple as seeing a person who is broken and in need of bandaging and oil and care. But this is such a thorny issue that we're going to have to sit with it and talk about it and figure out what can we actually do. And and we recognize it will cost us. Let me me illustrate this because it'll it'll give us a couple different points to to think through. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York City, um, 
in Manhattan, he, he gave this illustration. He used to pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, and one of the individuals from his church owned a car dealership when he was in Hopewell, Virginia. And so he told this story, and he said, um, the, the owner, a Christian man, gave his salespeople a tremendous amount of leeway to, to make sales. So on the one end, you've got the asking price, and then he told them, but you could actually sell the car for this amount if it comes to that. But anywhere in there, I'm comfortable with that. You can, you can negotiate and, you know, obviously you want to get as far up here as you possibly can, and, but you can sell down here. You'll just make less money. And the Christian business owner, the, the owner of the car dealership, began to discern that people were getting a better or worse deal in, in ways that were ethnically distinguishable, meaning he noticed that on the one end, the people who were getting the best deal on vehicles happened to be white individuals, and specifically white males. And the people on the opposite end of the spectrum who were paying the closest amount to full asking price or very, very near to that were African Americans and specifically females. And so this business owner saw that, and as he began to discern that that was the reality that was at play there, he said, guys, we, I'm a Christian. This isn't okay. And so he changed his business model so that it was more equitable, so that it wouldn't give preference or advantage to any kind of person or, you know, male or female. And, and here's what Keller said. He did the right thing, but then his business became less profitable. Now, I bring that illustration up. I bring that story up because I want us to think through when we begin to engage in this issue Love will demand from us, and it'll, it, it will be sacrificial. And we'll have to be very creative in the way that we consider these things, and we'll have to recognize that, you know, this isn't just going to be some easy fix that we can write a check and send it off. We're going to have to get, we're going to have to get near people, and we're going to have to figure out what they really need. As I was thinking about it this week and just wondering, okay, how can we take some action steps in this direction? Let me suggest that we would consider partnering with or working with a few of the organizations that our campus is already partnered with. And I believe we'll have the ability to put the links in the comment section, but there are three specific organizations that we work with, and, and none of them are really specifically targeted at racial equality, but it, it would be a feature of their, their organizations and their ministries. Rockhouse Kids in Rockford, Illinois, and our, the directors are uh, members of our campus, um, and that would be a good one to partner with. And they have ongoing ministry throughout the course of the year and lots of opportunities. And, and, and I would love for you to check that out and consider your involvement there. Um, uh, Stateline uh, JJM uh, would be another one that's working with the incarcerated teens in the Rockford community. And um, Jake Rogers is, is the director of that, and he's a member of our campus, and you could connect with him and, and find out how you could be involved there. And then outdoor outreach. We've got a, a day camp that's actually, in a normal year, meets right here. It meets at the, at the tree farm facility, and it serves underserved youth from the state line area. And, and I think any of those three organizations would actually put you in a position to better consider some of these things. And maybe that's the, the step we need to take today figure out how we can get ourselves into environments where we can better consider some of these issues. But love sacrificially cares for people. All right, here's the fifth and final point. This issue is a gospel issue and a gospel command. Some people would like to argue 
You know, let's not really get ourselves involved in these social issues. Let's just preach the gospel. Let's just preach the gospel and not concern ourselves with these, you know, kind of thorny issues. But we don't have that permission because Jesus makes it a gospel issue. Social justice and love for ethnically different people, according to this parable, are actually gospel issues. Look at, look at the context here. Verse 25, the context, if you recall, is a person coming to Jesus and asking a question regarding salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So the question is, essentially, what do I need to do to be saved? And when Jesus tells a parable about ethnically different people who have hostility toward each other, moving toward one another in love and compassion and mercy... Jesus is making racial reconciliation a gospel issue. So the parable itself is telling us that this costly neighbor love is a gospel issue. The the parable itself is actually explaining what the gospel is. So when you're reading the, the, the parable and you're hearing the context, so the the lawyer or the, the expert in the law comes and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to operate in the domain of your specialty. How do you read the Bible? How do you read the law? Well, you love God with everything that you've got and you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, excellent, you've answered correctly. Go and do that. And then he wants to justify himself and Jesus tells a parable. What is Jesus doing here? What is he doing by way of telling this story. Here's what he's doing. He's showing us what the gospel really is. And many Bible readers kind of miss the point. We, we miss the subtlety of how Jesus helps us understand the way of salvation. Jesus is not telling the guy, hey, listen, if you try really hard, if you obey the law, if you do this stuff that you know to be intrinsically right, you'll actually earn your way into heaven. No, by telling the parable, Jesus is reminding the expert in the law, you don't have it in you to do this. You're not, going to be able to, you're not going to be able to perform your way into heaven. You're not going to be able to obey your way into heaven. Romans 3.20 puts it like this. It makes it very clear. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Jesus isn't saying that if you want to have an eternal life, then just be a good rule keeper. No, he's saying, no, the rules that you cherish, the rules that you love, the rules of the Bible, they actually, as Romans 3.20 tells us, reveal our own sinfulness and our need for a Savior. They reveal for us the need for Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. So the parable is telling us, if you want eternal life, you have to receive the gift of God's grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have to receive the storyteller himself. If you want to inherit eternal life, you have to receive what Jesus has come to do for us. Um, One of the commentators, I think, got it exactly right when he was talking about the fact that when you read this parable, the only person you can identify with in the story is actually the person on the side of the road. As Christians, we don't read this and go, let's put our capes on, let's march to the rescue, let's be the heroes, we're the, you know, we're, we're the awesome ones in the story. No, the people that we identify with is the person who's needy, the person who can only cry out for help, the person who has to receive from somebody else because they can't do it on their own. So the good news of the gospel is that God does that for us, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. 
That God looks at us and he sees us in our neediness and in our desperation and he comes and he meets us and he bandages us. He pours oil on us. He cares for us. He sacrificially gives of himself for our benefit. That is the good news of the gospel and therefore this is a gospel issue. And we need to be people then who have experienced the grace of God and the mercy of God and then extend that grace and that care to those who are in need, whoever they may be including those who are very different from us. So let me end here with this gospel command. Gospel people, people who've received the mercy of God, ought to be people who extend the mercy of God to others, including those who are ethnically different. So at the end of the story, we have Jesus asking a very important question, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here's, here's our takeaway, church. If you've received the mercy of God, the undeserved favor of God, the salvation of God, that while you were an enemy of his, he came to you in love, met you where you were, rescued and redeemed you, and gave you a hope and a future, if you've experienced that, then be the kind of person who goes and does likewise, who sees others in need, who's willing to recognize brokenness wherever we might find it, across political divides, across ethnic divides, across racial divides. And we say, we as the church move toward others in love because that's what God has done for us. So would you pray with me, please? And let's be that kind of church, those kind of people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, you would continue to work in and through us. Again, we acknowledge the tendency in us to want to justify ourselves and not really do the hard work. But would you help us to be honest in this moment and to recognize need and to be the kind of people and the kind of church that sacrificially moves toward others. Lord, we pray for wisdom because these issues are bigger than our skill set, bigger than our abilities, and that's okay, God, because we're stepping out in faith, believing that you're going to give us the next, the next order. We're just going to follow your leadership in this. We're going to trust that you're going to see us through it. But we want to be people who love and serve others well. And in this moment, with race issues in our nation, we want to be a community of faith that is helping to bring about reconciliation. And we do that because our Lord and Savior Jesus died for us. Help us to embrace that by faith and help us to go and do likewise in his name.